So as you know, here we are. We're in the, what, sixth or seventh month of this pandemic, and things have gone a little bit back and forth. We've tried to open up some things. We've shut some things back down again. There's more unanswered questions than ever. Is it safe to go out? Is it safe to you know, do the, regain back to normal? Are masks really necessary? Is there gonna be a vaccine? All these, there's tons of questions. And on top of that, let's be honest for a minute. We have the politicalization of COVID. We have the election year politics going on. We have all this on top of some of the racial and ethnic struggles of this year. We have it on top of financial difficulties and economic difficulties. It's been crazy. <laughs> it's been absolutely crazy. On top of that, let's get to a little bit more personable. Personable? Personal? Yes. Level. I don't know what the research you've seen, or if you've even looked at any, maybe you don't like to know these things, but I feel like it's important to tell you. On top of, because I think of everything, pandemic, COVID, politics, just everything, mental health is being ransacked among Americans. Depression is up. Not just having bad days, I mean like clinical depression is in chemical imbalances which make it really hard to function Emotional distress, loneliness, all these things are up. And I don't just mean once again like, the, oh, I'm having a bad day. I'm talking about things that are affecting people in ways that they can't even process yet. They will be processing for years. On top of that, let's get even more contextual. Churches are struggling. I even had a talk with our eldership this week and I just feel like I should tell you. There are studies out there that saying only one out of three church members, 45 and below, are even watching online services anymore. The churches that are coming back to meet are reporting 30-40% drops in physical attendance. On top of that, a lot of people have lost their identity. A lot of people have lost their social structures. On top of that, there are people who have really lost people. There are people who have lost jobs. There are people who have lost livelihoods. This is a great introduction, isn't it? <laughs> like, when are you going to get to the good news? Well, that's the question. That's, that's the issue. What is the good news all through this? And people have been trying to answer that since the beginning of this pandemic. I've heard, and I'll just let you in on some of my theological bias here for a minute. I've heard bad sermons. <laughs> and if you are in this line, you are free to think that. I am not. I'll explain why actually in this sermon. I've heard bad sermons that saying this is just like all the famines and plagues and earthquakes that God has used throughout history to call his people to repentance. And it's because of sin, because of fill-in-the-blank issue that this pandemic is here. God's behind it. He's trying to get our attention. On the other hand, I've had conversations with people in our own congregation which have gone basically like, hey, I can't wait to see what God is going to do. And we're still waiting to see what God's going to do. It looks like things are getting worse in some ways. Yes, maybe the pandemic will be over soon. Maybe we'll have a vaccine. But there's emotional, physical, uh, financial, mental distress. Churches are hurting. People are hurting. People are, you know, 
going out and being social is changed? Looks like it's getting worse. Where, God, what are you doing? <laughs> and then there's most of people, it seems, that are somewhere in between going, I have no idea what's going on. And I have no idea how to function in this. I'm just trying to put my head down and figure out my own day. I don't have time or the inclination or the emotional stability to go figure out what the church looks like tomorrow. What our family looks like next month. Then there are people who are barely even bothered. They're just like, I can't wait for this to get over. So we can get back to the way things were. We're all over the place. <laughs> what is our role? What expectations should we have of what's going on? Believe it or not, Scripture does have some answers. But I'll warn you now, they're probably not what you expect. I don't know how many of you caught it, but the title of this month's series is called The Church of the End Times. Now that's a loaded term nowadays. Especially since we've had the Left Behind series with from Tim LaHaye and we have, I mean, I don't know how many times you go through the grocery store and you see the tabloid saying signs of the end times, the seven signs of the destruction of, of doom or you know, of, um, the ring to Mordor has finally been found, oh no, Sauron's on his way. Uh, <laughs> it's everywhere. We've had, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm, if I get into that, I'm going to step on a whole bunch of stuff I don't need to step in, so I'm just going to leave that alone. That's a loaded term. It's loaded because a lot of people have run with it in unhealthy ways, but also the majority of us don't know what that means. Well, as always, and I'm not saying that the people who misinterpret things don't go to Scripture, and I'm not even saying I'm right in everything. I'll tell you right now, and I've said this before, and I will stand by it. I'm probably wrong in 30 or 35 or 40% of what I currently believe about Scripture. The problem is I just don't know which 35%. I'm trying to figure that out. So, you know, don't trust me because I'm just sitting here with a Bible. You know, read for yourself and we can disagree and that's okay, but I want to tell you where I'm at and why. That's the whole point of a preacher. In Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple, in verse 4, he says this. Well, here we go. Uh, I'll start in verse 3. He says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? Excuse me. <laughs> and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now that actually is an important phrase which we'll talk about in two weeks. Just bookmark this in the back of your head if you want to. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. That's fun. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Disunity, division. Sounds familiar in a way, right? And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will go cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, 
Now this is contextually talking to the prophets specifically about Jerusalem, which in a sense was the end times of their age. Notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say when this comes it's because when this comes because he what's the most of the time he's talking mainly about when you see stuff don't be led astray. When you see stuff don't be alarmed. You need to expect that bad stuff's going to happen. You need to expect there's going to be division and wars and famines, probably pandemics in there. Don't be alarmed by this. This is part of the consequence of a fall war. Basically, what does he say? That then the one who endures to the end will be saved. What's that put another way? The one who continues to just keep trusting in me, they'll be saved. In essence, if you want to put this in a, in a weird nutshell, he's saying, when you see stuff going on in this world, just keep trusting in me. Don't try to worry about it. Don't try to be led astray. Don't get caught up in the divisions. Don't get caught up. He says, just endure in me. Trust in me. Now, that may seem a bit simplistic until you read, as maybe you have, of what Hebrew says about when are the end times. And it actually says it in verse 1. Actually, verse 2. I'm sorry. <laughs> Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. What does Hebrews define the last days as? It defines the last days, the end times, as all the days post-Jesus. Now, there's a lot of Greek we could go into about what last days means. It actually means age. It just, you know, there's a lot. We're not going to touch Revelation. We will eventually. Last days is simply this side of the cross, first and foremost. So when the Bible talks about the end times or the end of the age, these last days, signs, times, we're talking about everything post-Jesus. You know Why? Well, let's go back to Matthew 24. He's basically saying that, look, you've had the Old Testament prophets. You've been warned. You've been preached all through the Old Testament. You see, Jesus is at a really neat... I'm struggling for the word. Uh, uh, intersection. <laughs> there we go. Intersection. Because he's not quite simply an Old Testament prophet. He is. He's fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. But he's also bringing in the new kingdom. What were the Old Testament prophets all about? They're all about proclaiming repentance to the kingdom of God, right? Well, Jesus is all about, yes, bringing people to repentance, but also instituting the future kingdom now. By coming, he was bringing God's presence into the here and now. The present kingdom, inaugurating God's kingdom to be ultimately fulfilled one day. What Jesus will say over and over again is like, look, I am. This is what Jesus being once for all, the, the sign once for all times, the sacrifice for all sins. This is what it means. Not that it's just simply covering all things. That's true. But that Jesus is the ultimate sign. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is the ultimate sign of the end. Meaning we're not going to get any more big signs. We're not going to get any more prophets. We're not going to get any more big things that God is going to say, yes, you speak for me. It was Jesus. That was a very southern saying of that. It was Jesus. No offense to my southern friends. I don't know why I just went on a southern twang just then. 
Jesus is the ultimate sign. Jesus is the ultimate sign, meaning the last sign, but also the ultimate sign, meaning the best sign. God coming and doing what no other prophet, no other figurehead, no other Adamic figure could do, which was overcome sin and bring true eternal life into the world. What other sign do you need? Jesus over and over and over throughout the Gospels. I'm not going to go into all this. I'm extemporizing. People would ask for a sign, right? Give us a sign. The Pharisees and the, and the crowd, give us a sign that you're the ultimate one. And Jesus knew they only wanted a, a sign to be impressed. What would he say over and over and over? This temple will be torn down and rebuilt in three days. There will be an ultimate sign when I come, you know, when the Son of Man comes now. He points to his resurrection. He points to his coming again. He points to his death and resurrection. He points to him on the cross. Jesus constantly points to himself as the ultimate fulfillment of all the signs anyone could ask for, as well as the ultimate sign of the things to come. That's probably one of the point number ones we need to understand about end times anything. That one, we're in the end times already because all the end times are on this side of the cross because Jesus is the ultimate and final sign until God comes and sets everything back aright. Now that's a big pill to swallow for a lot of people. But I think it's true. So the question then becomes, if bringing all these things together, the question then becomes not how do we interpret the signs and how do we trust, it becomes more about how do we trust Jesus. It becomes more about, well, what is our role in the midst of those times? What does it look like that God is in control? You, you ever thought about that? Well, let's go, let's go to it for a minute. Man, I'm glad I don't have an outline today because I would be all, I'd get lost myself. <laughs> um, maybe I should have had an outline. I wouldn't go everywhere like this. It's interesting in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is talking about the resurrection of the Christ, he talks about over and over and over about how God is ruling, how Jesus is Lord. Uh, let's start in verse 20. But the fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have been fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as an animal all die, so in Christ all should be made alive. Each in its own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those belong to Christ. And at the end, he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every power and authority. For he must reign till he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. He's talking about how God is, Jesus is already doing that. And then ultimately, he will conquer every animal, animal, every enemy that, ultimately, he will conquer every enemy that still has yet to be conquered completely and utterly and totally, and he will, in essence, hand his kingdom back to God. But he's talking about Jesus is already reigning. Jesus is already on the throne. Jesus is already king. The resurrected Jesus is already king. He is sovereign over the world. And we are trusting that one day he will come back and put things aright. And until then, we are to be his people. Now, one of the cruxes of this. Now, hopefully let me bring this all back together, okay? We've covered a lot of ground. One of the cruxes of this is what does this look like? Because it's a valid critique that many people look at the pandemic, they look at the world and go, there is no stinking way that God's in control of this mess. There's no way that God is in control of, of anything. 
And I think more Christians think that sometimes than we realize. You know what's interesting? In John chapter 9, Sorry, John chapter 11. John chapter 9 is later. <laughs> In John chapter 11, we have the death of Lazarus. And he comes, and the sisters, Mary and Martha, have come and said, Hey, come heal Lazarus, he's going to die. And, and Jesus is like, hang on. <laughs> he said, This illness doesn't lead to death, it's glory of God, so that the Son of Man may glorify through it. Uh, he waits a couple days. And he comes. And in verse 28, we read, When she had said this, that I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit, and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, you probably know it. Jesus wept. Jesus, who knows his power through the Spirit. Jesus, who knows his mission is to conquer death itself. Jesus, who knows how this scenario is going to play out. Jesus knows what's going to happen. And yet, what? And yet Jesus, who is Lord and Messiah and will ultimately conquer death, even in this moment, will conquer a death itself just in a few moments, he weeps and is troubled and deeply moved. The sovereignty of God is not just about what happened and not just about what will happen. Jesus knows Lazarus is going to die. He knows he's going to be raised from the dead. But what does he do? He is present 
with his people. The sovereignty of God. King Jesus weeps as those who are around him weep. Many sermons have been preached on this, and it's about how Jesus was moved and how why he wept. But I think they miss the point a little bit because the simple fact is we understand why someone weeps. We understand why someone joins in tears and grief and lament with those who are in tears and in grief and in lament around them. It's being present with people. It's being in the moment with people. It's about relationship with people. It's about loving people. I just want to, I want to camp on this for a second. That Jesus, although he knows Jesus, Lazarus will not stay dead, still weeps. He doesn't ask why. He, I mean, all around the I'm asking why. He weeps. I think one of the big lessons we need to remember about being a church in the end times is taken just from this very simple thing. Now obviously Jesus does take care of the issue. He raises Lazarus. But one of the best things I think we can do to emulate Jesus in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of whatever is going on. Lesson number one from this lesson is to be present with people. Be in the moment with each other. And know that God's in that moment too. Trusting in God does not mean we don't have to still mourn or grieve or weep or feel Lament, we, could, we need to lament more, but that's a whole other thing. Trusting in God is about knowing that God is present with you in those moments. And one of the best ways that I think we can be witnesses of who God is, is to be present with people. To take the time to actually spend the moment with them, to be with them. To love them, to trust them, to become as Jews, Gentiles whatever you need to be. I can't overemphasize this point in this opening series, in this opening sermon, because this is actually the basis for the rest of the series, and the basis for the rest of the lesson of how we are to be, what the church is to be as an end times church. It may seem so simple But let me ask you something. How many times do we really let ourselves be present in the midst of politics, pandemics, health, finances, and just 
be present with people not try to fix it not try to solve it not try, but be present and just let us feel each other feel with each other be able to lament and be able to be honest with each other be able to be vulnerable with each other be able to say this stinks right now and go yes it does but we're in it together we're here Why else would Jesus weep other than to be present with those who are grieving as well, to grieve with those who are grieving? John 9, just two chapters earlier, gives us another view into this, however, as well. In John 9, we have a man who was born blind. And as I turn to it, very haphazardly apparently <laughs> they asked him where is it <laughs> there we go um, they asked in verse 2 and it's like verse 2 obviously it's really easy to find um, as they passed by he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him Rabbi who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind Jesus answered it was not this man of sin nor his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day night is coming when no one can work as long as I am in the world I am the light of the world now notice what Jesus does here notice how this builds on the whole content being present even though John is a little later 11 two chapters later Jesus doesn't dwell on what was he dwells on what could be in the moment what does he say it's not, it's not a matter of who sinned but that the works of God might be displayed currently in him that's the power of being present. If we're constantly looking back at the past to what we were and what we have been or what our sins are, and there's a place for that, we will never be in the present or look ahead. But if we're constantly in the future looking forward to seeing what God will do, we might miss the fact that God is using the current events, not maybe in the ways we expect, but using the current events to display who He is to the world. And that actually wraps me into my third and final point of this lesson. Which brings us to the church's response in Acts 11. And I'll close this up and I'll wrap this up hopefully here in a minute. And in Acts 11 we read about the church in Antioch. And I want to start in verse 27. This is an introductory sermon. We'll flesh these out in the next few weeks, I understand. Verse 27 of Acts 11. Now in those days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. 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 So, Claudius. So, verse 29. The disciples determined that it was because it was sin and people needed repentance. No. They determined, oh, I can't wait to see what God's going to do through this. No. The church determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The elders were present. The church was present in the moment. Not looking in the past, not trying to determine the why, but determined the how of what to do. And what did they do? They determined who was going to be affected by it, they determined what they could do, and they acted. This is setting up next week, I'll admit. But the point is this. Who is in the present moment in your life? 
you and God, right? When we say, oh, we can't wait to see what God is going to do in this, how has God always worked in the world? Through his people. Jesus said there are events that happen so that the glory of God, that God's greatness can be displayed even in the worst of things, blindness and famine. And we see the example of the Antioch church saying, all right, what is God's response? Well, maybe God's response is for us to determine who's going to be affected, what can we do, and to act. Brothers and sisters, I'm sitting at my in-laws house and I'm sitting in a swing which apparently is very uh yeah what a way to break the tension right Maybe almost falling on my face <laughs> you never know what's gonna happen see you don't get this kind of thing in, in person because I'm not sitting in a swing but maybe I'd prefer that anyway what's the point that I want to make to set up the rest of the series and to give you something to think about now you may have felt like I was all over the place in this first sermon. To the extent I was, I'm trying to lay down some foundational principles. But here's the thing I want you to dwell on. Being a church of the end times is actually not even about the end at all. We are in the end, in a sense. But Jesus tells us we don't need to worry about the end. We need to trust in Him, who He is and what He has done. What does that look like? It means being present. And by being present, being aware of how God can be displayed and be used in the present, which may actually be not by something amazing that we go, oh, look at that and point out, but it may actually be through us, like the Antioch Church, you and me, working with God, how God has always worked in the world. God has, do you realize God has always worked in the world, not simply and only through his one-sided you know, powers and godliness God has always worked in the world through with and by willing human partners which spoiler alert is what the church is we are his sons his daughters his heirs his children working with him in partnership in koinonia for his will so where are we from here we're going to talk about in the next three weeks what it means to work with God. We're going to talk about what it means to be present in this world. And we're going to really expound upon this, some specific things about what the church's role is as far as being present and active to those who need it. And let me just leave you with this thought. By asking, maybe predictably, three questions that lead us back to the ones I pointed out today. This week, in what ways can you be absolutely present with those around you? In what ways this week can you be not only looking for, but expecting God to be glorified and manifest in the present, wherever you are? And maybe this week, 
how much you realize in the present could God be glorified and manifested through your actions. The pandemic maybe can teach us something. Maybe the pandemic can teach us that instead of waiting for God to do something great, that maybe God is waiting for us to join Him in His greatness right now. Not what I'd expect. Grace to you this week, and we'll see you next time.